And Alice is going to speak to us now. We're, uh, this is our second in our new series called Rebuilders. Uh, so we're going through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, there's so much in there which is relevant for our life today. About how we join in with God in rebuilding society. Not just in the midst of coronavirus and beyond it, but uh, for the rest of our lives. This is the, this is the call that, that, that God has given us. Great. Alice, over to you. Hi everyone, it's lovely to be with you. Please can you pop up on the comments whether you can hear me or not. And whilst you're doing that, I didn't realise that Chris was going to talk about how the state of our house is, but I wanted to share something about that as well. So I don't know about you, but cleaning a house or tidying can be both organic and organised. There can be systems, we do this every day, we do the sheets every week, month, year, whatever. And organised is every week I'm going to do this room, every year I'm going to change the sheets, whatever, and that isn't a comment on our our personal laundry system. But anyway, there can be an organised process to cleaning, and sometimes it's an organic, and it is, I'm just fed up with this in my house, and I'm going to tidy it and clean it right now. So this morning, I had a moment of that with the entire bottom floor of our house. I was like, it is dirty. I've just got to hoover the whole lot and the stairs and the landing. And I knew there are loads of other things I could do in my house in terms of tidying and cleaning. We all can all the time because of the nature of the biological world we live in. Things create dirt over time and fairly quickly. However, I knew that was it. That was, if I could just do that, then I could continue to live in the house fairly happily. And I think that is an insight into what we're looking at today, which is discerning God's purpose for our lives. And I will come back to that in a minute. We're focusing on the book of Nehemiah, which is a fantastic read. It's a great story of a man called Nehemiah who was called to leave a third wave of exiles back from captivity in Babylon and then Persian empires back to a little backwater called Judah, whose capital is Jerusalem, to rebuild the broken walls of a city. And we're going to be looking from him at how he discerned God's purpose for his life and learning from him. There are many, many good teachings and writings and inspirations on purpose. We don't have way enough time to look at them all. We're just going to glean three things from chapter two in the book of Nehemiah. So I'm going to read chapter two now and draw out three aspects that we can put into our own lives if we are in the process of discerning God's purpose for our lives. So in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. To be a cupbearer to the king in the Persian court was a, a role of great trust and confidence and also potentially death-threatening all the time. Firstly, kings themselves are incredibly petulant and impetuous, were terrified and paranoid of being killed as this father's, one of, one of the Persian king's father was killed by his own courtier in his bedchamber. But also, 
if you if you were the cupbearer to the king, you were the one who tasted the wine given to the king, so you could be poisoned if the courtiers were trying to poison the king. So it was a, it was a extraordinary position, but also a very vulnerable and delicate position. Namely, particularly, he could never be sad in the king's presence. He was there to bring joy and happiness to this very self-focused, petulant, tyrannical, but ultimately extraordinary king. The Persian Empire was the vastest empire the world had ever known up until that point. He says, I had not been sad in the king's presence before. That's incredible. He really had done his job well. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever, a typical greeting in those ancient empires. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? A little bit of wisdom here, he doesn't talk about Judah or Jerusalem. At that point, he connects emotionally, with emotional intelligence, with the Persian an understanding and respect for the cities of ancestors. He doesn't say where it is at that point. The king said to me, what is it you want? An incredible statement. Sit in that verse again. Verse four, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, one of many of Nehemiah's arrow prayers, quick prayers that he has in a moment and answers immediately. If it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters, so that I can have safe conduct until I arrive in Judah, and... May I be given all the timber I need to make beams for the gates of the city, of the temple and the city wall. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat and Tobiah, the officials, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. By night, I went out through the valley gates towards the different wells and gates, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down. A real sign of of poverty, of shame, of dishonour in ancient cultures where the protection of the city wall meant everything for the flourishing and livelihood of the city. I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews, or priests, nobles or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned by fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them, about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. When Sambalat and Tobiah heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. 
I'm going to draw out three aspects to divine purpose that we can glean from this chapter, touching on the rest of the story of Nehemiah. So firstly, there are three Ps, some of you might be pleased to know, posture, passion, and practicality. So posture, and the whole theme you'll hear through this whole talk is about the divine human cooperative, the divine human partnership. God does stuff, and we do stuff. He says yes, and we say yes. And finding and fulfilling divine purpose requires both. So firstly, the posture really is one of humility and faith, that we're in a story bigger than ourselves. Nehemiah was in a story bigger than himself. He wasn't the superhero. We're not the superheroes. He wasn't a lone ranger, nor are we. We have our own specific purpose, but we're in an extraordinary, overarching story of the restoration of the human condition into a whole new way to be human, focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in something far bigger than ourselves. And when we make peace with that, that he is at the centre, then we begin to find our purpose and our place of contribution. Now, Nehemiah's own story was that he was born in exile. He'd never actually lived in Jerusalem or Judah, but he was devoutly Jewish. But there was a moment where he knew he was part of a bigger story of getting exiled back and restoring Jerusalem and Judah. What he wouldn't have known was that itself was symbolic of an even greater story of recovering humanity from the old human condition marred by the sinful nature, represented by the oppression of empire, liberated back into the free children of God in the land of promise and intimacy with God. So he was, he knew he was part of a story bigger than himself, but he was part of an even greater story, symbolizing the story of the restoration of humanity that he wasn't even aware of. So the first thing that we need to have is a posture of humility and faith. We are part of something far greater than ourselves. And when we come into that place of peace, we make peace with the centrality of Jesus, the Trinitarian God at the heart of the universe, holding the universe, sustaining the universe. We can find our purpose. And secondly, part of that posture is personal intimacy with God. So he had a, he had a, he had a sense of the vastness of God and the big picture, the God of heaven the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe. But he also had a deeply personal faith. And we see this from his response, his extremely distressed response when he hears a few months earlier of the walls being broken down in Jerusalem. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts. Fasting is only commanded once for one day a year in the Torah, in the instructions, in the law given at Moses, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Any time you find extra fasting in any of the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, it is human initiated. It is humanity seeking, saying, I am so distressed about something that I'm actually going to go without food to get breakthrough, to get help, to get to hear my prayer, to express my emotion and my desolation. It is a sign of humanity seeking God. And he mourns, he fasts, he prays for days 
when he hears of the broken down walls of Jerusalem. But he also has, as I've touched on, arrow prayers. He's going through his everyday life in the middle of his job, in the middle of his work. He prays these quick arrow prayers, asking the God of heaven and favour for success. Now, this was pre the time when we could all have a personal intimate relationship with God because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So this was prophetically anticipating a people to come who could have a deep personal relationship with God, be in the spirit, hearing God, expressing our heart of emotions, praying arrow prayers and seeing God move. And that is the posture of finding purpose. We're in a story bigger than ourselves and we have a personal relationship with God that is way more important than finding specific purpose. We know him, we love him, we want to be with him, we hear his voice, he speaks to us, we know he loves us. That is the posture that we all need if we want to find our purpose. And this is true in my own story as well. As some of you may know, I've been working on a project for many years now, which I'm about to launch next month, which is really exciting. It's Biblios, it's an overview of the Bible through all sorts of games, play, activity, to enable anyone who doesn't know the Bible at all to get a community of get-together to get into it and get the box, get the kit, and within a fairly short period of time be able to absorb the whole Bible easily. And it's really exciting. It's one of the greatest privileges of my life to be involved in that. But those two things really apply to me. That's part of my purpose, is to be able to put something like that together. But those two things apply for me. My contribution is is part of something that God is doing in the world today. He's recovering intimacy globally, and I get to be a part of that, and I'm very aware of that. Secondly, the whole journey of it, of of developing of this, wouldn't have been possible without a personal relationship with God, and has been sustained by that My personal relationship with God is more important than the outworking in purpose. Intimacy produces fruitfulness. So that's the posture. The first thing in finding divine purpose we see from Nehemiah, and I I know from my own journey, is we have to know we're in a story bigger than ourselves, and we have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Then, out of that, the second revelation or second step comes, and we begin to touch on passion. Something happened to Nehemiah when he heard that the walls were broken down. As I've said, he was broken. He was a desolate man. He was utterly taken out for days. He was brokenhearted. Now, he was in the heart of the Persian court. The atrocities that were being practiced in that culture as daily routine would have been distressing to any of us for the rest of our lives. We are so Christianized in our mindset as to what's acceptable and unacceptable. And yet he seemed to have been able to live in that context. He, he had joy before the king. He was able to have a relationship with God. He's made peace with the world that wasn't right until he hits this moment when he is suddenly distressed and distraught, a bit like me cleaning the house this morning. There are loads of areas we could clean and tidy all the time in our house. But there is a moment when something, I cannot live with it anymore, I have to get out the hoover and clean the floors and the stairs. And it's almost like Nehemiah was doing life in the context of an extremely dysfunctional culture and empire, and he was able to be at peace with that. Without compromising, he was at at peace. He was in this world, as Paul put it, but not of this world. And then he hit something that he says, I cannot actually go on without seeing that reconstructed. That is broken, and that needs restoration. 
and I am part of the creative solution to that problem. Notice there's no blame, there's no, why aren't they doing what they should be doing over there, or they do what they should be doing. He enters into being the creative solution to the problem that takes him out. And I want at this point to talk about something called the Stockdale Paradox. This was an analysis of how people coped with concentration camps, which were really, really tough environments in the Second World War. And there were three approaches. The pessimists who were like, everything's hopeless, the world's going to pot, we're never going to get out of here. And they, on the whole, died first. The second lot were the optimists. We're going to get rescued by Christmas, we're going to get rescued by Easter, summer's coming, they're going to rescue us. And amazingly and fascinatingly, they actually were more likely to die second. The people that tended to survive were the people, as it is put in the Stockdale Paradox, who faced the brutal facts but never lost hope. They were fully engaged. They weren't depressed and they weren't in denial. They were absolutely aware of the problems around them and yet within it they, they never lost hope that one day they'd be rescued. And they were, and they survived. That mental approach is the mental approach that we need when discerning our purpose in the context of the world we live in. We could be cleaning and tidying all the time. We could, because of that, go, I'm not going to bother ever. I'm just going to let it all go. Or we could be endlessly optimistic about the state of our house. Or we can go, do you know, the reality is we need to clean and tidy regularly. And that's how life is and that's how we're going to do it. And Nehemiah absolutely epitomises the Stockdale paradox. He faced the brutal facts. And I imagine he probably did this within the context of Persia as well. But he never lost hope. The brutal facts were his city, his, where his ancestors were buried... The great, the chosen, the people of God. The city was broken down. There was desolation and shame and dishonour. That was the reality. It wasn't all happy back in the promised land. There wasn't utopia, heaven on earth there. But he never lost hope. He didn't say, I'm I'm, going to give up on that. I don't need to do anything about it. I can put my head in the sand. I've got a great position in court here in Persia. I'm I'm a blessed person. He never lost hope that he could be the creative solution to that problem. And at great personal sacrifice, he started to engage with bringing a solution to that problem. What is it that provokes you? What is it that when you... We can deal with the world, can't we? There's always things to change and correct and progress all the time in ourselves and around us. But what is the thing that almost takes you out? What is the thing that you, you think, I cannot rest until that thing is resolved, until that thing is changed? And I want to encourage you that this is smart. It's very often smart. It is a sustainable, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound project or work that God gives. I'm going to give you this all the way through history. If you look carefully at purpose, you see there are infinite spin-offs, the ripple effects go on forever, but the initial call or purpose is often very specific and very practical. So my passion is that I see billions of people who suffer needlessly because they don't understand the reality of a biblical worldview. They just don't know. It's not that they're actively resisting, they just don't know how life could be. 
the invitation, the endless invitation into liberating intimacy with God. But my solution was smart. It was very specifically design a course that is fun and deep and rich and builds community. Nehemiah's solution was very specific. You go back and you get every household to rebuild next to their family. We'll, we'll go into that more in the next few weeks. But I'm going to talk about some other inspirational people. I was in church, community in London in the mid-90s. And I remember the time where the Holy Spirit had really been poured out on on Holy Trinity Brompton in the 80s and with the ministry of, of incredibly inspirational people like John Wimber. And in the 90s, they made a decision. We are going to take this course, which we've been using for Christians, called Alpha, which helps Christians learn about Jesus. And we are going to give it, we are going to put it out there for people who don't yet know about Jesus to give them the opportunity to come, become a follower of Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to do. They weren't ethereal, we're going to see the world changed. They were practical. They had purpose, they had an absolute passion to see this nation and the nations restored to the knowledge of Jesus. But it was deeply practical what it looked like. What it looks like is regularly running Alpha. That's what it looks like. Week in, week in, month in, month out, year in, year out. And the spin-offs have been incredible. There's been church planting, there's been leadership training, there's been social transformation. But the actual purpose is smart, it's tangible, it's quantifiable, it's run this course in this way in your home or your church. Let's go back now to the 1600s. We've had this incredible uh, shaking of Europe between those who want to see reform in, in, in the church, the people of God across the whole continent, and those who are resisting reform. And a whole bunch of movements came out of that, one of which was the Quaker movement. Now, the Quakers were key in receiving the Holy Spirit, and they also were very much key in the founding of the the new world, of the colony, the British colonies over the Atlantic, which became known as the United States of America. They were part of those 13 colonies, and they were happy to have slaves. That was part of what they did out there, and they had made peace with it theologically. And this extraordinary couple, they were both hunchbacks called Benjamin and Sarah Lay in the mid-1600s, about four feet high. They go over, they, they cause trouble wherever they go, but they go over, they're devout Quakers. And after a period of time, they see what's happening in the Caribbean. And they are just, they just say, actually, this is unacceptable. Slave trading is unacceptable. I cannot, as a Quaker before God, as a Christian before God, collude with this. Now, he injured his wife, who supported him, but then sadly died. And so he was on his own for about 20 years. He was, his one thing was to get the Quaker movement, so not all of Christians, certainly not global anti-trafficking, but one Quaker movement in the New World, as it was called at the time, to not take slaves. That was his vision. That was his smart purpose and call. And he fought for 20 years. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. As I said, he gets to his deathbed. If any of you are budding historians, lay historians, interested in how Christ has forged the Western world, brilliant historian last year, Tom Holland, wrote this book, Dominion, really interesting, on the forging of the Western mind, including the fruits of things like secularism and scientific endeavour, how that is all rooted in a specifically Christian mindset. Anyway, he touches on this story. Never once did Benjamin Lay despair of the words of Jesus 
which was not only that an individual could be born of flesh and born of the spirit, but a whole worldview, a whole nation, a whole culture could not just be born of the flesh, but born again of the spirit. 20 years after he gatecrashed the annual assembly of the Philadelphia Friends, the Quaker movement in Philadelphia, as he lay mortally sick in bed, he was brought news that a new assembly had voted to discipline any Quaker who traded in slaves. I can now die in peace, he sighed in relief. It was smart, and of course it was the tipping point. There'd been glimpses of abolition all the way from the teachings of Jesus and the early church followers of Jesus. But he was a catalyst to the tipping point where 150 years later it was the biggest ever petition in the British Parliament signed by the most ever people to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire and beyond. And of course now there's a global anti-trafficking movement. The spin-offs have been incredible and he stood on the shoulder of giants and he would acknowledge that. But he had one specific time, one specific call, one specific purpose. It was finite and it was simply to get the Quakers to stop trading in slaves. So it's extremely practical. That's, that's the final point I'm going to make. It's extremely practical. We have a posture that we're in a story bigger than ourselves and we have a personal intimacy with God that is living, it's active, it's creative, it's rich and it is surprising and spontaneous like any functional relationship is. It is also touches on passion, the thing that we cannot keep going if it still exists in the world as it is, the thing we want to see change on, the thing we want to reconstruct. But finally, it is practical, it is deeply practical, it is finite, it is specific. It is Benjamin Lay just wanting to get the Quakers to stop trading in slaves. It is George Muller saying, there are street children in Bristol, I want to see them housed and trained. The spin-offs from George Muller's life go on still, I read books even now about people who are not British and certainly don't know about Bristol, who still reference him as an inspiration in that he prayed all his money in by faith, and the equivalent of millions of pounds in today's money. But actually what his call was, what his purpose was deeply practical, and it was, and it was, and, and it was quantifiable. We see that with Jackie Pullinger, who some of us may have heard of in Hong Kong. She got on a boat, she wanted to change the world. She got off at Hong Kong, met a couple of believers who helped her encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. She was filled with the Holy Spirit there. And what became, quite, it's quite a quantifiable, specific call that has an infinite spin-offs, not least the inspiration behind Heidi and Roland Baker in Mozambique. They spent some time with her. And they've, they've seen extraordinary, thousands of churches planted, thousands of children helped and and restored who, who don't have parents and so on. But what happened with Jackie Pullinger was a very specific, finite work. Through praying in tongues, day and night, over people, mainly men, young male heroin addicts in the walled city, in as was in Hong Kong, and now just wherever they are, as they're prayed for overnight, they experienced full and complete deliverance from drug addiction without any withdrawal symptoms, any cold turkey, which is anyone who knows who deals with anything to do with, with drug addiction is impossible humanly. 
That was that is her work. That is the smart, it's quantifiable, it's measurable. She changes the world, she wants to change the world, she says I'm available. And then the work she's given is very, very specific. And it is ongoing, and we've experienced it, tasted a bit of that ourselves, and we visited. And this practical is absolutely empowered by divine favour. There are miracles all over it. Those stories, every story, our story, my story with developing Biblios. There are open doors, there's financial provision, there's protection. We see Nehemiah was given the wood he needed, was given the king, said to him, what do you want? There's this incredible open door and invitation when we posture ourselves to enter into the purposes of God for ourselves and our generation. The king asks us, what do we want? I'll give you anything you want. So they got provision and incredible, a massive armed guard all the way there and complete protection. We'll see in the weeks ahead how there's opposition and all sorts of other things. But to sum up very, very simply and very briefly, there are three aspects that we can learn from Nehemiah about finding our divine purpose. Firstly, it's our posture. We have a posture that we're in a story far bigger than ourselves and our main focus in that is to develop a deep and intimate relationship with God. That is more precious than anything. All these other things pass away, but that lasts forever. Secondly, it's about passion. Connecting with the thing that we want to see changed. We can handle and we can settle with a lot of things, but there's one thing that we say, actually, not under our watch. We want to see that changed and we become, become part of the creative problem to that, the creative solution to that problem. And then thirdly and finally, it's deeply practical. It's us in the material world doing things, dealing with people in a practical way. I want to finish with one couple who I think exemplify this at Hope. It was, it's really moving thinking about all of you at Hope because every single one of you, I can see this sort of divine purpose, these passions, these interests, these sparks, all of these things applying. But one couple particularly, Guy and Tanya West, who have a passion to see marriage as God's designed it to be, just beautiful, fun, enduring, lifelong, functional. They have a great marriage themselves. They have children who have great marriages and who've chosen to live with them in lockdown, which is a real witness to the real gifts and calling on them. And, but, and very practically, they haven't sat around saying, we want to see marriages look great. They've actually worked hard, put in a lot of time, paid a lot of price to set up uh, relationship Academy, and they are pursuing what they believe their contribution is to the bigger picture of God's restoration plan in our generation and in our age. And as I say, I could say this about person after person after person at Hope. If you're listening to this, some of you will go, yeah, I know exactly what the thing is. It's in the secret places now, or I know it's going to start, or it's already there. There are others of you, though, who are watching this and it's painful because you want to connect with purpose. Part of our DNA is to know we have purpose. Press into that first bit, posture. Press into the bigger picture, the bigger story of God. Press into personal relationship with him. Enjoy him. Spend time with him. He stays. These things go. He stays forever. And also start to connect with your passions. Start to hear the things that provoke you. You think they probably provoke everyone, but they don't. They provoke you. And that's where we can start to be attentive to 
what God is calling us. And finally, be prepared to be the creative solution to the problem that we see. Not blame anyone else. Take full responsibility with our gifts, what's in our hand, what we've been given, and the extraordinary divine favour that God puts on anything of his purpose. And begin to pursue that in community. Thanks, Alice. So, uh, that was Nehemiah chapter 2. And it's, uh, so ch- chapter 1 was about God created us with a purpose. This chapter 2, we've been looking at how we find that purpose. And next, we're going to move into how we sort of move in that purpose and what it looks like as we step out into the purpose that God's called us for. So alongside this, if you're joining us on the kind of midweek rebuilders journey, mm-hmm. then uh, this week, our email is going to come out on Tuesday and Kat's got some great teaching for us on hearing God's voice. Yeah. And that's part of our discovery of, of what is our purpose. So Nehemiah had this thing on his heart. He didn't necessarily hear God in the same way that we might talk about it now in the New Testament, but um, but he, he discerned and felt his way into God's leading for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to, so Kat's been bringing some teaching this week, uh, which will come out on Tuesday by email, for those of you who are on that, um, about hearing God's voice. And then, and then the following Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, we're going to have an original design evening where we ask God to speak to us and, and, and speak words of purpose and design for each other. So this is all about, we're using these first three weeks, really, to, to build this foundation, this stronghold, this fortress of purpose. Knowing who we are and what we're about mm-hmm. is such a uh, source of strength for us to move forward into the life that God has for us. Mm-hmm. So, let's pray. Yeah. Lord, we just pray for all of us, uh, everyone who's here, people who've been at Hope for a long time, people who are just joining us for the first time online. Thank you that you've created us with a purpose. Yeah. Thank you that you delight in, mm. in, in actually travelling with us to discover it. And I think part of your, the way you work with us is you love us to, to discover things together with you rather than, than necessarily being all typed out on a sheet of paper and handed to us in one go. Part of discovering who we are is part of the intimate walk that we have with you. So we pray that in these coming weeks you do that for each of us. You, you show us what our purpose is. You show us what you called us to or you affirm us in it. You encourage us in it if we, if we think we're pretty clear already. And we want to see through you, um, through, you know, we want to join you in your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven to see the rebuilding of society. Yeah. Amen. Amen.